When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Creoso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 180, The Bureaucratic End of the Ring of Iron. 1646 opened in a generally bad way for the royalists. Charles was staggering around from defeat after defeat and from crisis to crisis, and it was obvious to many that the cause was lost. So many did what most do in times like these. They put on their best dour expression and joined the winning side. Wales was filled with many who saw the king's lack of strategy and the parliament's tactics and made decisions to protect themselves as best they could. Some were also opposed to bringing Catholic Irish mercenary companies to the royal side, which caused a number of Welshmen in the south to defect. For as much as they hate Puritanism, the Protestants in Wales were not about to put up with Catholics. In some cases, this meant long-time royalist soldiers going over to the Parliament. In others, it meant troops simply melted away rather than take a side. Welshmen had started to conclude that dying for the king was making less and less sense at this point. This sense of watching where the wind blew and trying to go with it came in some cases because the king could not stop relying on his Irish allies. As more English and Welsh soldiers died or fell under parliamentary control, there was more movement towards building alliances with companies across the Irish Sea who could fill these vacant royalist ranks. Typically, this would be a reasonable way to defend yourself when situations are dire, and the fresh troops might turn the tide. However, this was the 17th century, England and Wales, a place where religious affiliation matters more than the help they may receive. So Welshmen and women started to find themselves worrying no longer about the English, but about these Catholics that were coming to their lands. Influenced by 100 years of anti-Catholic propaganda and various factions in Protestant England, they had taken their fear and hatred to even further extremes. Suddenly, the Irish were Catholic barbarians, bringing Satan's corrupt version of Christianity to their shores, looking to pillage and in some cases rape them, murder them, and steal everything they had. At least that was the concept in some eyes. Some of the Welsh nobility reacted by refusing to leave their homes, their fears of Catholic raiding and pillaging, held more concern for them than the cause they were supposedly fighting for. Yet, even so, there were still those who joined the royalist cause and fought for the king. Colonel Edward Carn was one of those. He led a regiment of soldiers to attack the castle at Cardiff, where a regiment of soldiers from the parliamentary side had garrisoned themselves. 
And this attack was carried out in February of 1646, not a time where the royalist cause was in good shape. Carn had become an opponent of the parliament for two reasons. One, he had opposed the taxes that were being charged by parliament, which at that time were seen as exorbitant. Two, he believed that the Puritan prayer book, which had been published, was bad and had evil effect on people. That he was still able to gather troops is a mark to just how much ability he had in rallying supporters to his cause. However, it was pretty clear that Carn was in over his head, as Edward Pritchard, the commander at Cardiff, called for help from Roland Laharn and his forces from the west. They arrived on February the 18th and made relatively short work of Carn's more numerous troops. Six months later, South Wales fell under total parliamentary control when Raglan Castle fell in August of that year. The king, after the fall of Chester, fled back to North Wales and ended up in Denby Castle, but the reality of the situation was starting to take hold. Throughout the year of 1646, more and more castles across Wales and England had fallen. Some were bought off, some were simply abandoned, and others were defeated. The last to be taken was Harlot Castle, that redoubt of many failed rebellions, royal civil wars, and the last embers of Wales for the king. In 1646, with the writing on the wall, Charles actually gave up before all of his castles fell. Not to the parliamentarians, of course, but to the Scottish Covenanters, who actually had been the cause of much of the war in the first place. It was believed that it would create fault lines between these English Puritans and the Scottish Presbyterians. This continued dispute did exactly what Charles hoped it would do, as Puritans in Parliament hardened their positions as others began to dislike how things were working. Living under Puritan rule suddenly did not seem all that great. Weirdly, all sides seemed to think that Charles would continue as king. This then created a problem, because the Puritan demands in Parliament ran counter to what the king would agree to. Thus, there was this dispute amongst all sides, the independents, the covenanters, the Parliament's Puritans, all disagreeing about what to do. And when the Parliament failed to dissolve the New Model Army in late 1647, many joined with the Scottish, as they're called at this point, engagers, in an agreement to restore Charles to the English throne. It was from this point that once again, men from across Britain's sides of various positions, once more flip sides joining the royalist cause. I suspect this was because many saw the Civil War as a continuation of the war against King John, which had led to the Magna Carta. Instead of dethroning Charles, they simply wanted him to acknowledge parliamentary superiority and create a new way of running the government, something that would be familiar to the crown in the 18th century, but was still too far for a Stuart king, and not far enough for the Puritans. All of these disputes led to the Scottish invasion, which was supported by royalist risings in South Wales, Kent, Essex, and Lancashire, along with sections of the Royal Navy. However, this entire rebellion would fall flat. As mentioned a few episodes back, one of the big supporters for the Second Civil War 
in South Wales was Parliamentarian Commander Roland Laharn. That must have come as some surprise to the Puritans. The Laharn forces were many, but they were not at a level of the professional force that fought on the parliamentary side. Parliament's much smaller but better trained forces of around 3,000 men were arrayed behind Colonel Thomas Horton. They fought 8,000 royalists near St. Fagans to the west of Cardiff. The outcome was a crushing defeat for the royalists and the effective collapse of their cause in the south, something that helped parliamentarians pivot to deal with other threats both in Wales and in England. On May 25, 1648, Sir Nicholas Kemes, commander of the Royalist forces at Chepstow and a gentleman who has raised Welsh troops for the king in the first major battle of the Civil War six years earlier, led the last gasp of the Royalists to hold out against the new model army. Behind the beleaguered defenses of Chepstow Castle in the southeast of Wales, he tried to hold in vain. The castle walls were breached, and a ferocious assault descended upon that stalwart garrison, as they were referred to. By the end of 1648, much of the rebellion across England and Wales was defeated by forces under Oliver Cromwell and Sir Thomas Fairfax. This led to the execution of Charles I in January of 1649 and the establishment of the Commonwealth of England, after which the Covenanters crowned his son, Charles II, King of Scotland, leading then to the 1650-1652 Anglo-Scottish War, which ended with Charles fleeing away from Britain to await a better opportunity and a better time to come. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active.
Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. As previously has been mentioned a few episodes ago, and going back to the story of Harlech, we have the origins of the song Men of Harlech possibly coming during this era. We don't really know the truth, whether it was now or whether it was the previous War of the Roses. This, however, would be the last time Harlech would play a central role in English or Welsh politics. This defeat was the end of even the last embers of Welsh royal support. With the war ended in Wales, Oliver Cromwell led a campaign slighting castles in the next year or so. The Welsh, in his mind, were seduced and ignorant people, and they had become wrong about supporting the wrong type of religion and needed correcting. He would ensure that they would be educated out of this so-called incorrect way something we'll discuss in a later episode. Why did Welsh Castle's The Ring of Edward's Iron stop playing such a central role in later disputes? It wasn't like castles ceased to be fortifications that were used. They were very popular going on even into the New World. They continued to build versions of these fortifications across even in the Americas. And their ever-changing design strategy became all about dealing with artillery and all of the things that had been developed since the end of the Middle Ages with the inventions of cannons and guns and all of those things. So it wasn't like they ceased to be important. It was more that they changed in a way or somehow became less important for other reasons. And the reality of British politics would start to be focused much more on Ireland and Scotland as the Union approached. Most threats to English government were now going to more likely come from the South than the and East rather than the West. One of the likely reasons the English, since the Norman period, had been so keen to take over Ireland was to push threats to the mainland. So often in the 500 years of post-Norman conquest, Ireland had been the base of operations for opposition and for foreign armies. The conquest of Ireland put an end to those threats largely. Combined with that, Welsh integration with England had gone over well enough that threats from Wales had depleted to the point where maintaining soldiers to oversee and enforce the English way of life had largely become unnecessary. Wales had been part of the kingdom now for 300 years, and the age of Glyndor was long past. In those years after the end of the Civil War, parliamentarians instead decided the best way to deal with the Welsh was instead of keeping these symbols of dominance, these hard points, by actively destroying portions of the castle, it was felt that it would make them less desirable to both maintain and act as a point of defense for opposition and for problem people later on. So a mission was created to eliminate the Welsh castle structure. 
At some point from 1649 onward, parliamentarian troops slighted castles up and down the Welsh countryside. Slighted refers to the idea that through a targeted destruction, the castle would no longer remain militarily useful. In other words, you take down a key point of the castle rather than destroying every wall or every standing structure. If you just blow up one portion of it, it then makes it so that it's easy to access. There's no really easily defensible point. Something that would be useful for someone should they want to maintain a rebellion or create some sort of factionalization. Usually in this period, this was done, as I said, with explosives that ruined the castle and make sure that it stayed ruined. Some might wonder how castles could be in this case, utterly destroyed. Aberystwyth, for example, while others seemingly com remained completely intact, such as Harlech or Carfilly. One reason was that the areas that were abandoned by the nobility, these castles then became targets of a different kind. Once they were no longer something that was considered a power structure or considered a right of ownership, something that helped the local nobility maintain their position, and they start to move more towards manor houses and fine buildings as they do, especially in the Victorian period, then you see these castles fall into disrepair and disuse. And then it becomes a case of rather than active destruction, you have populations moving in and, and creating their own version of destruction. So effectively undoing so much of it. This is why buildings from beyond this era have Tudor timbers, castle wall structures in them, or in some cases, various medieval buildings far and wide are rebuilt from these things. And so you'll see, like, for example, if you go to Bath, there's the wall of Bath, but it's certainly so integrated within the city that it's not exactly a terrifying sight to behold. Um, you could easily stand atop it without much trouble. In the time before Victorian antiquarians came up with their own fascination with the medieval period, few felt any particular reason to let good building material go to waste. Thus, instead of a project of rebuilding and refashioning and reimagining what the buildings would look like, you have instead people repurposing, reconstructing, and eliminating these buildings altogether. Thus, why when you go to some areas, there are quite a large amount of the castle left, and in other areas, there's almost none of it left. So therefore, the massive building program of Edward was undone not by Welsh rebellions or actual wars amongst the English and the French or some other foreign nation, but rather by bureaucratic decision-making and local populations understanding a well-built structure when they saw one. In one piece of irony, Harlech, the old holdout for failed kings, once again held out as its sliding actually failed to damage the castle to any great degree, and it remained a military founding point, but one that would never be used, as Harlech generally was able to hold out for two main reasons. There's two large reasons why it's able to hold out. One, it was really well built and positioned, and also completely useless. 
The castle is positioned on the Irish Sea, in an area of Wales that is not highly populated even today. And though you can maintain a defense of the castle, the idea of leading an assault of any size from it was now completely pointless. Harlech was simply a magnificent example of fortifications at their high medieval best, but did nothing, or almost nothing, to help defend Wales, or England for that matter. It was much more about the impression it gave the Welsh citizens than a practical, useful one. I'm going to be honest, this bit of history floored me when I first realized this a few weeks ago. I was under the impression that most Welsh castles attacked in the Civil War were likely destroyed by cannons or in other manners, or in one case in Aberystwyth, I thought it had been actively blown up because of its position as a mint for the Royalist, and that that was why it was in such a state. So imagine my surprise when I found out that most of the castles fell without a shot in anger and only fell into ruin because of a decision of Parliament in 1650 to remove these threats, or at least to save on the upkeep. It goes to show that humans have a capability to convince themselves of how history should make sense, that in reality has nothing to do with what really happened. So often we think that you need some drastic event to happen in order to create a situation, when quite often it's nothing more than some bureaucratic administrator's pen that eliminates something that previously had been so important to the world. Often, when we think of the castles of Edward and how they're viewed, rightly, as objects of oppression and suppression, like the Romans before them, the Normans and their English ancestry decided that the best way to eliminate the threat posed by the Welsh was to build fortifications across the countryside, from Harlech to Cardiff, from Pembroke to Denby. The castles and forts acted as hard points where soldiers could respond to local issues and troubles, largely because of the time and lack of documentation in Roman Britain. There is no real feeling of this oppression in the same way that castles represented, but make no mistake, Roman forts and Roman bases were built for the exact same reason. It was to say to the local population, we are here, we are important, you will obey. That hasn't changed, be it Romans or Normans. But these perceptions of these castles and their position in society in Wales has created political controversy. As a few years ago, the Welsh government commissioned a literal iron ring, which was to be set up as a symbol, and in the end, the public protested because it was seen as a symbol of defeat and oppression. Yet, even as it was seen as the symbol, even as our modern senses look at it in that way, that's not how it remained. These buildings played host to Welsh nationalists or Welsh-born nobility, such as Owen Glyndwr or Henry VII, and were important places of Welsh strength. These castles featured strongly in the nationalist songs, such as Men of Harlech, because they had become symbols of Welsh freedom turning them into protection against English tyranny as they took them and controlled them. Harlech Castle was the seat of the royal house of Owen Glyndwr. Had he won independence, this would have been the seat of his government. Henry and his uncle were based in Pembroke Castle, and it was that castle which protected them from the Yorkists 
and was one of the first places they took back on their return. Today, Welsh flags fly over all of these formerly English castles that were also destroyed by an Englishman. Protected now by Welsh people and considered an important part of history, no less important than the Roman forts at Caerleon, Cardiff, or elsewhere in Wales. It is important to remember that castles, like people, have complex histories. That they are a symbol of repression and subjugation is undoubtable. Edward and his descendants never meant to them, for them to mean anything else. They wanted the Welsh to know and understand who was in charge and to fear the English. However, this is not the only thing they tell us, and it's important to remember that we can look at them in more than one perspective and in more than one way. And so, therefore, you can appreciate how these castles protected Welsh nationalists, how they were signs and seen as important seats of authority for Welsh government. So they maintain in different ways and in different methods that sense of nationalism, even as they show themselves as being signs of English dominance. And certainly, one could argue from the Welsh perspective, especially a Welsh nationalist perspective, that the use of uh, Carnarvon Castle to have the dedication of Charles as Prince of Wales certainly was a sign that could be pointed at as being a sign of these castles being used in a way that reinforced this concept of subjugation. Something I don't think the monarchy meant at the time, but something that certainly makes sense if you think about it from that perspective. And with all of that said and done, I think it's important to remember all of this and why they're important both as features of English dominance and ingenuity, but also as features of historical importance that played roles that were very different than what they were created for and very important to Wales as a country even to this day. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening. I hope you have a fantastic week. We'll see you after the holiday break. Thank you all so much. If you want to contact me, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or you can reach out on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast or conversely, if you would like to help the podcast fund books and research, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you everybody once again for listening. Hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? 
did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.